Hey, this is the current Yield Grants Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Brandt, and with me, as always, is the great Deputy Editor of Grants, Evan Lorenz. And with us today, as our guest, is Mary Childs, who is the author of The Bond King, the story of Bill Gross. Hey, Evan, I went around the office the other day uh, uh, raving about the excellence of a news story in the Financial Times. I call it like the exemplar of the fine news story. And it was about... uh, uh, how German car makers are stymied by the loss of Ukrainian parts. And it begins with the fact that, um, I'm not even sure if Mary is going to know this, this answer, but uh, inside every car sits almost blank or TK miles of electric cabling. Ooh. Now, Mary, how many miles of electric cabling will there be in a car? Okay, no one told me that there was going to be a pop quiz. Uh, seven miles. Ah. Uh, you totally ruined the job. Well, it's, it's three miles, but isn't it amazing? Uh, it's not more like, I would have guessed like 15 yards. I'm a subway person myself. <laughs> Your uh, framing made me think it was a lot. So I just went <laughs> right. Yeah, somebody says, uh, you know, uh, guess how long that home run was? The guy said, well, three miles. No, it wasn't three miles. It was 500 feet. <laughs> so this the story goes on and it describes the uh, uh, that for the loss of uh, the humblest seeming part of and a car, which is a wire harness, for the loss of the wire harness that are harnesses that are manufactured in these Ukrainian plants with the most dexterous women available in Ukrainian villages and cities. For the loss of this thing, car makers can't, uh, can't get out of first gear because uh, without a wire harness, you cannot thread the wires through the car, et cetera, et cetera. And this story, Evan and Mary, reminded me of the intricacy, the delicacy of market economies and uh, and how, you know, at one point you would think that capitalism is like a field of industrial weeds and you can't kill, it's always going to come back. And then you read something like this and you realize that, uh, of course, we also saw in the pandemic that uh, the parts of this incredibly complex self-activated contraption are, in fact, a little bit delicate. So the date is March 16th. That's the day before, yeah, St. Patrick's Day. I want to commend German car makers hit by loss of Ukrainian parts to every single listener. But more than that, I want to commend to our listenership of the Bond King. So Mary Childs, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Yeah. Well, Mary Childs is, as Mary, as you know, Phil, well, but not every listener is a co-host and correspondent of Planet Money. That's an NPR and her previous tours of duty have incorporated the uh, the FT Bloomberg and Barron's, it used to be Barron's National Business and Financial Weekly. It was kind of a grandiose thing. I think got rid of it all. Yeah. Mary's a formidable figure in the financial journalism. And as I say, she is. So how long, Mary, did it take you to do this book? Um, it depends, you know, when you start the clock, but overall it took me seven years to do this book. Well, Bill Grosnall owned like 20, right? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So I think, you know, he left PIMCO in the fall of 2014. And I worked for for many months on a big story about what happened there. And then and then once that published, I was like, okay, this is this is it. Let's do this. And then, you know, he kept changing the narrative. He kept doing more stuff. So, yeah, it just it kept on rolling on. Tell us about uh, how you arrived uh, in the not especially welcoming uh, leak. Yeah. (laughs) the regions of Newport Beach, California, without an appointment, without a contact, and you had to, in your own resourcefulness and initiative, uh, bring up some brownies. (laughs) Yeah. So 
in the fall of 2014, you know, everyone wanted to know what had happened. Everyone was, you know, trying to figure out the real story of why Bill Gross left PIMCO so abruptly. And PIMCO wasn't talking and Bill wasn't talking. And it was just everybody was super buttoned up. So I'm sitting there and, you know, my sources won't talk to me. Everyone's just kind of, you know, if they know something, they won't talk to me. And if they don't know something, they're, they're like, I don't know, man, you know, call somebody else. So I visited a contact in Southern California, just kind of, you know, didn't have much to do. They're nice. We hung out, we chatted about the markets and, you know, they had just made some brownies. And so they gave me a little Tupperware full of brownies, just like nice people. Right. So I go back to my hotel room and I've been dreading this one thing that I have to do. Every journalist who covers a beat, if something happens on that beat, you kind of have to do this thing called doorstepping where you go to the house of the person at the center of the maelstrom, right? The Whoever the thing has just happened to, and you knock on their door. You're like, hi, um, do you want to comment? And usually, they, you know, you get horrified looks with people being like, have you no decency? And you're like, I do not have decency. No, I don't have that. So <laughs> it's, not, it's not the good thing that you want to be doing, but you have to do it. You know, I'm a beat reporter. I don't have like a whole lot of agency here. So I dutifully gather myself up and I'm like, wait, I got these brownies. It's like normal. It's normal where I come from to just take a tin of brownies to someone who's just had a tragedy happen, right? That's a normal thing to do. So I I thought this was kind of a way to make it normal. It was like a loophole for me so that I didn't feel so disgusted with myself doing this. So I trucked down to Laguna and I, you know, try to go to Bill Gross's house, which is obviously impossible because it's obviously in a gated community. And the guard is like, may I help you? And I'm like, yeah, hi, I'm here to see... um. Uh, Bill Gross, is he home? <laughs> and she's just like, <laughs> I, I can't, I, what are you even? And I'm like, no, yeah, 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 that's fair. That's fair, I get that. Um, can I leave these brownies? And she, again, is just staring at me and blinking, like, I don't know how to help you. <laughs> like, obviously none of these things make any sense. She's like, no, I'm not gonna take these brownies for a billionaire with enemies. And I was like, okay, I completely anthrax, like threats, I get it, I'm gonna go, I'm just gonna go. And I <laughs> You know, I call my mom. I'm like, oh my God, what did I just do? This was so embarrassing. <laughs> Told my boss that I did this, you know, left out the brownies because, you know, he didn't need to know about that and went about my life. And I completely forgot about this incident. <laughs> you know, I blocked it out basically. <laughs> and then many, many years later, I want to say it was like 2018, I heard this rumor that had been making the rounds at PIMCO that I had shown up to Bill Gross's house to get the story wearing a Girl Scout uniform. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh my God. Like, why, why would anyone think, oh no, it's the brownies, the brownies. Like, I did this to myself. I played myself, my like wonderful, generous way to my loophole totally backfired and created this rumor. But you know, um, I also think it's indicative of the kind of culture at PIMCO, the little gossip train had gotten a little off the rails and yeah, it was informative in the end. Is it, is it true that they paid you $10 million not to write the book? <laughs> You should see my house, Jim. It's beautiful. No, no one paid me. <laughs> this was the other rumor that I, I heard about myself, um, that everyone was so confused why it took me so long to write this book, which, you know, fair, me too. But there there became this, this sense that there must have been some dark dealing, right? That That someone must have paid me off. And I actually heard that someone very high up at PIMGO had paid me $10 million. And that's why I wasn't writing and publishing the book anymore. It was dead. So what, yes. what's your price? So $10 million is not your price, right? <laughs> it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> well, no one actually ever offered me that. So we may never oh. know what, if I have a price. But someone did offer to try to broker 
Um, I think he was sincere, but I, I, you know, I, I might, I'm thinking I, I would, uh, I would pay someone a lot of money not to write a book sometimes. Right. Yeah. Um, I wanted I want to tell our listeners a little bit about some of the uh, really good writing in this book. I, I, Mary, I so loved something that you perhaps have forgotten. You wrote that's one of the things taking a long time with the book. You wrote the phrase "abruptly rich," which describes, mm-hmm. of course, the compensation track of not a few people on Wall Street. So I thought it was so much better and and. Uh, more arresting than uh, suddenly. So that's what's indicative of Mary's gift with language. Another, I want to read you a couple of sentences, ladies and gentlemen, from Mary's description of uh, her Orange County. This one from everyone's Orange County. So if you are from Orange County, this is just Mary's Orange County. Here it is. <laughs> Apologies. She is talking about um, why anyone would uh, go to work for uh, PIMCO in Orange County. So, uh, quote, why else would anyone uh, relocate families from New York to the barren strip mall desert of Orange County for a job everyone knew was miserable? Never seeing your family again, watching as their interests withered to surfing or real estate, plastic surgery or bar class, to combat the money boredom, the pitch black early mornings, the politicking, the disrespect, the never-ending emails from Gross and El Arian, and on down the line. That's a, quite a series of uh, phrases and sentences. And I, and I wanted to ask you, this, this passage incorporates the names of two of the protagonists in this book, Bill Gross, of course, mm-hmm. uh, the center, but also Mohammed El Aryan. And I'm guessing as a fellow journal, Mary, that uh, Mohammed gave you more access than did Bill. I see him quoted, and if I'm not mistaken, perhaps a little bit more favorably. But what is it about Mohammed El Aryan? Bill thought that he was a, an academic and a kind of a platitudinarian, and he did not deserve all these hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars. He got what how do you can you give us a, a kind of a composite or a brief a sketch of the relationship between the two, which figures importantly in this book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, I, I should say that actually the inverse is true of your hypothesis there. I got almost no access to Muhammad Alarian. Um, you know, he's so friendly, he's so polite, he's always in the press, but he would not talk to me for this book for years. I tried, I tried, I tried. Obviously, he's so central to the narrative that it was. Um, like deeply painful as a journalist to not have access to someone just right at the core of the story. But yeah, he didn't want to talk to me, which, you know, that's of course his prerogative. But then he somehow evidently obtained a copy of the manuscript and had a lawyer send me his notes. So he basically weighed in on the nearly final product and in that way did participate, which I was so grateful for. I was so happy to get to incorporate his thoughts. And, you know, it's it's one thing to synthetically replicate someone's views and, and state of mind, but it's always so much better to just have them themselves weigh in. Right. So that was a, a great relief to me, but it was um, really late in the game and very stressful. Um, so so to answer your actual question, um, the the relationship between the two, I don't know. I mean, there's a question as to whether it was doomed from the start. Right. Where they have such different approaches to financial markets and to communicating and to how they see the world and to how they see, you know, effective processes, like every single thing. I can't think of very many things where they actually agree, um, where their, their kind of overall posture is even remotely directionally the same. Um, you know, Bill seems to see Muhammad as this bureaucratic guy and he he wants to kind of debate and he never says anything and he wants to, you know, just arrive at this consensual mush is what, what Bill would say. And on the flip side, I think you could say Muhammad saw Bill as, you know, 
authoritarian. He'd already made up his mind. He was too harsh on people. He made all these messes because he was kind of reckless and, you know, just kind of careening around and, and, and deciding what he wanted to do in the market and then just going and doing it despite the, you know, broad institutional, you know, structure around him that was supposed to make it a little more robust. So I think you can say, you know, I, it's obviously up for debate, but when Muhammad Alarian came in as, you know, co-CEO and co-CIO, which was a deviation from Pinko's traditional structure, I mean, it seems like the relationship and that succession plan were already doomed. One of his uh, investment pieces, uh, some of them, as you said, in the book, a little bit oversharing, but sometimes uh, just uh, refreshingly totally. frank and, uh, and self-revealing. At one point, he asks uh, rhetorically, am I a great investor? So um, Mary Childs, author of The Bond King, was, was, is Bill Gross a great investor? This is, I think, the question I get the most. And it's such an interesting one where, of course, there's no counterfactual. There's no world in which there was not a 40-year bull market in bonds, you know, the wind at his back. But you can look back and see the different factors, you know, that he says that he used and that he apparently did use. And it does seem, you know, there's a study that came out in 2019 that I think is pretty good that showed that, yes, these factors did contribute to outperformance. And even above and beyond those factors that he used, he did deliver alpha. And I think he did identify market inefficiencies. You know, one of the things that PIMCO did, I think, more enthusiastically and perhaps cavalierly than others is um, instead of holding cash, instead of, you know, you know, when you're required to have cash against a, a futures position, position or, or some derivative, they will invest that cash in cash equivalents because you're allowed to do that. It says cash and cash equivalents. That's fine. And so the definition of cash equivalents can be a little bit broad, right? So you can just get a little bit extra juice out of those, you know, short dated corporates that are just as good as cash most of the time. And that debate, that line as to what's not actually a cash equivalent is really interesting. You know, there's a there's some conversation as to whether, you know, does a Russian floater count? I don't I don't know that it should count. It seems like right now, not not really. Um, but that's that's a real question. That's a real thing that people have debated. So just going that extra little tiny, you know, reaching just a little bit further in this actually conservative part of the structure, right? This is not where you're supposed to be like gunning for anything. You're not, you're not supposed to really be pressing too hard in the cash bucket, but that's one of the places that PIMCO found they could reliably deliver just a couple extra basis points. And that adds up. Well, Mary, which reminds me actually of our sponsor and uh, what would uh, a podcast be without a word from that sponsor? So here is mine. So we are having a conference on the 18th of October in Manhattan at the Plaza Hotel. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, you must be there. And I'm going to tell you who's going to be there besides you. Uh, Tom Hodig, the the past president of the uh, Kansas City Fed, who had the courage and persistence to resist QE when it first got started. Ed Chancellor, who will be out with a new book, The Price of Time. That's the uh, capitalism and the curse of easy money. And that will be distributed to you gratis, ladies and gentlemen, conference comers. Um, Christopher Bloomstrand, a fine, fine investor, Lee Gehring, and Adam Rosenzweig, the very latest uh, thinkers and doers on commodity markets. Uh, Zoltan Posar, who is the monetary thought leader at Credit Suisse, and Darren Mopan, the founder and director of Pilgrim Global, who has given grants um, a whole lot of good ideas, and he'll give you some too, ladies and gentlemen. So we'll see you at the Plaza Hotel on October 18th. You know what I, I was 
I'm impressed by with to declare an interest. Will Gross uh, spoke once at a grants event. And he, yes, I, so he's good. Very generous to uh, grants and crediting us with certain things that he uh, found helpful in the past. So all that's out there now. But uh, one of the things that impresses me about his career is that he describes himself as a bear market guy. Mm. And here he was doing business in, uh, he didn't get in quite at the bottom in price, the top of yields, but his career was was essentially one, as you said a moment ago, uh, in uh, in the great bond bull market. Mm. And uh, to some extent, he had to, um, he had to, kind of overcompensate or compensate at least for his uh, predilections. And then from time to time, he would say, as in 2011, he was going to short the bond market or not get away from his index because he uh, so uh, disliked what the Fed was doing with regard to QE. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's funny. You, you, that's a great point that he did declare the end of bonds with regularity. And he's doing it now. You know, he's out there saying he, if he started his career today, he wouldn't be in bonds. That's for sure. But when he started his career, he also didn't want to be in bonds. So he's sort of been an unwilling participant this whole time <laughs> in the market that he locally yeah, shaped. He and billionaire. Yeah, exactly. He's like, I hate it. Get me out of here. There, there are other characters in this um, most readable and enjoyable story of yours uh, uh, that are, are, are kind of charmers. And one of them I found was uh, Ben Trusky. Oh, good eye. I agree. Self-deprecating uh, uh, junk bond manager. And uh, was was he the one who told you about the uh, uh, his idea for um, uh, a human resources test of applicants that uh, were you abused as a ch- abused as a child? If so, did you like it? Was that did it come from Ben? So that did not come from Ben. I believe I heard that from someone else, okay. and then I took it to Ben, of course, for fact checking, and he declined to comment. But you know. <laughs> Ben could have said that as funny as he is, but I, the substantive investment I, that I took away from Ben in, the, in these pages is the idea of strategic mediocrity, which is the idea never to be, isn't this kind of interesting, Evan, never to be the best and never, of course, to be the worst. Uh, and, and by the way, I think that the, the two positions, both positions are not unrelated. People who aspire to be the very best sometimes take risks that land right at the bottom. Isn't there that Nordic concept of, what do they call it, the Peter Principle, where the person who stands up the tallest gets whacked down? Mm. Well, that's, that's the life in Japan, I think. But yeah, this you've hit on one of my very favorite things in the book, where his one goal was to be the best junk bond fund manager over 10 years. He didn't want to do one year. He wanted 10 years. That's all he wanted. And so he ran a bunch of simulations to figure it out. And the way to do it was to stay in the top, you know, 25, 30% but to not gun too hard, like you're saying, not to be the best in any given year, because then you set yourself up to be the worst too. Exactly like you're saying. And it's, you know, he achieved his goal. He did it. He, <laughs> by Lipper, I think, I think Lipper was the measure that he he ended up with. He was indeed the number one bond, uh, junk bond fund manager over the 10 year period. Well, I'm so glad he worked for PIMCO for the pleasure of reading about him in, in their book. Yeah, the kind of guy you want to have lunch with. Yeah. Um, so uh, Bill Gross had no time for, he was a reluctant uh, bond uh, billionaire, if that's a thing. Yeah. And yet he had no time for stocks. Yeah, I think um, it's funny to think about the way he views different asset classes. Um, and, and of course, everyone's opinions change over time with, with those markets changing. So sometimes he was like a little curious. And there's a scene in 2009 that is sort of um, burned into the memory of everyone who was present where he's like, we need to be doing equities. You know, why aren't we in equities? Why aren't we going faster? What are you doing? And, you know, he was right. That was, you know, in a a way he kind of called the bottom that was, you know, right before the stock market bottom post-crisis or in the crisis and into the recovery. And 
you know, other times he was like, stocks are dead. Why do we even have a stock division? What is that? So I think he had this kind of um, mistrust of the stock market that also shows up in junk bonds. He's also very skeptical or, or was reportedly very skeptical of, you know, why is this bid offer so wide? I don't like they're ripping me off. Make it better. Like close that. Get the basis points. And you're like, it's just a wider mark. Like, I don't know how to. Uh. Uh, he said something or wrote something that you quote here. Again, we were uh, talking to uh, Mary Childs, the bond king. And when I quote Bill Gross now, which I, I think is, is this is one of the wisest things uh, mm. attached to his name that I've read in your pages. Uh, quote, it will not be size itself that brings down this firm, says Gross. It will be the accoutrements and trappings of size. It will be the assumed privileges of the rank and station belonging to one of the best and most successful mm -hmm. money management firms the country has ever known. MCO is less likely to explode externally from the ingestion of too many assets than it is to implode internally from a self-induced ulcer. Good writer. Close quote. Now, <laughs> well, yeah. And, and um, was that ulcer Bill Gross himself? What a question. Um, I think, oh, you could definitely see that. I mean, it's, I'm of so many minds here because I'm, I have all of my, you know, sources in my head <laughs> telling me the answer, you know, like, yeah, I think some would definitely say that. I think some would say that the firm grew beyond his wheelhouse and grew beyond his comfort. And he was just uncomfortable with the amount of risk in the firm. And actually he would say that part um, and, and wanted to rein it into things that he could really wrap his arms around. Um, I think that, was he the ulcer? Um, I think he dealt so poorly with that transition at the end that there is certainly an argument to make there. Yes. Um, I think the like trappings of size, it's hard to define, I think, what that means necessarily. Like it's not that they I don't think Bill was ever too entranced with the trappings of wealth. Right. Like he has a private jet, but he doesn't really travel that much. He has a lot of houses, but he's just not you know, he doesn't like kind of flex his wealth in the same way that a lot of billionaires do, especially the ones that we know and love on Wall Street. Um, but I think like, yeah, the the ulcer, he certainly was pained by the the size of the firm and the kind of risks that he felt he couldn't totally understand and definitely passed that pain on to others. So I think I'm arriving at, yeah, I guess so. Uh, here is Mark Van Andreessen, the uh, famed venture capitalist, reacting to uh, something somebody said about uh, Bill Gross's alleged uh, improprieties. Quote, the behavior described is completely typical of any highly successful, high-functioning organization in any field I've, I've, um, I've, uh, I've ever seen. High-functioning business organizations aren't Disneyland. There's always stress, conflict, argument, dissent, emotion, drama. And that's, uh, you know, that would be Apple, Oracle, et cetera, et cetera. What, well, what about that? Um, couldn't it be said uh, that... that Bill Gross um, saw mm -hmm. things that others didn't. He was different. He was he was the he was really the face and the brain of this operation. And um, and some to some extent, other people were along for the ride, and they got uh, rich on yeah. his yeah on uh, on his eccentricity. Oh, I think that's right. So, I mean, so, and and yeah. I think he'd be among the first to tell you that, right? That there was this feeling that it was his firm. He made these people rich, and the dissent and the kind of um, that what he calls the cabal of, of people who overthrew him for, you know, his share of the profits, you know, yeah, they, uh, I think he would definitely say that this is a tough culture because we have to be, this company has to do well. And the way we do well is by trying real hard, you know, like what, what are we doing if we're just going easy on each other and, 
that's not how you win. It's we're not here to be Disneyland and be a big, happy family. We're here to deliver performance. So whatever's done in the name of performance is what needs to be done. And I think that's justifiable for sure. I think there's a little bit of friction with that view and our current world. You know, I think we're having this big renegotiation with what we expect from our employers and our employees. And that doesn't really jive well with the old PIMCO culture and what I think is still the PIMCO culture. And a lot of the culture on Wall Street where, you know, people are, are saying, this isn't working for me and I don't have to take it. I don't, I don't want to do this and you can't make me. Yeah, no. Evan, what do you, I mean, what, what are you going to say to this question? Evan, is, is, is life at France, does this resemble <laughs> life not at a trap. It's Try totally to be as fine. frank as you can be. I, I think the question is, if I stop making eye contact with you, Jim, will we sell more issues? <laughs> <laughs> Should you try it? I could do it for a week if you I want. Mean, you need a longer time horizon than that, I think. <laughs> you got to do like a year to have a good sample, right? So one of the phrases that I that I marked in this book as an example of, um, of Mary Childs is gift for language of the wispy-voiced one-man firing squad. Bill Gross has a, has a kind of a, a, a anomalously, mm-hmm. a, like a counter-tenor. He's got a very high voice and he, he speaks as if he were not and over. He speaks as if he were not about to turn over a table and fling a phone at you. Oh, I, I never did that no. kind of stuff. Did he you? would like a little bit slam desk drawers, I'm told, but that was more or less the extent of it. That's fine. Yeah. Who doesn't do that? You know, yeah. I'm okay with that. Yeah. He has a unique, I don't know, presentation no. overall, right? Like he's this like folksy guy on television. He shuffles his feet when he's talking to you. He's like looking down, he's kind of bashful seeming and just kind of fragile. You're like, oh, yeah. All right, guy. Like that's so. But then the flip side of that from inside the halls of PIMCO, (laughs) that little voice, you know, inspires absolute terror in people across the trade floor and across Wall Street. You know, the banks that, you know, worked with PIMCO that sold bonds to PIMCO and bought them, they also felt this kind of chill from this like kind of wispy little voice. Yeah. Well, it's a wispy voice with a most powerful intellect. And tell us, I mean, uh, this this uh, question I'm going to ask is a special uh, relevance to uh, uh, to uh, high performing and mm. self regarding founders of businesses. So uh, Bill Gross, the, the founder and the irreplaceable piece of Pimco, uh, walks off expecting, I gather from your pages, Mary, that uh, many of the mm-hmm. assets would uh, would follow him, yeah. and uh, remarkably few followed him. And uh, did he, he? Did he feel what was there? A, did he feel a sense of betrayal that the customers were not expressing their solidarity as they ought to have for all the things that he had delivered to them? What, help us understand oh gosh, that it was such moment, a fraught moment. And I remember this so well at the time. You know, I was covering it for Bloomberg News, and everyone expected this massive wave. They were saying, you know, thirty billion dollars at least was going to follow this guy. You know, he's been this legendary investor for so long, and we all just waited for this tide. And it was a trickle. It was just this, I think, you know, he had, he got 500 million from Soros and he got a couple other, I think Old Mutual, there were a couple other names that did follow him, but he didn't, he didn't really say, you know, he's like, oh, clients can do what they want. But knowing his, what he said over the many, many years and understanding his concept of loyalty, I have to think, you know, he was kind of the kind of person who would say, this, I, I served you so well. I gave you all of this outperformance. I made you so much money. And this is how you repay me. You stick with them. Like you stay there and just take your chances with this bureaucratic thing that is nothing without me. That I think it was a real, like a really sad moment for him. I think it was both um, depressing to see the kind of lack of loyalty in, in those clients that he'd worked so hard for for decades. And also 
like insult to injury because he's trying to show Pimco, you know, he's trying to like do this big thing. Like he's like you know, yeah. raising his army and the army's just not there, you know? No, I, I am. I'm going to tell a story that I don't mean to be um, uh, <laughs> the commercial or uh, the international equivalent by any means. I, I was at Barron's for like seven years and I left in 1983 to start Grant's Interest Rate Observer. And um, I think Barron's had had a circulation of uh, maybe a little less than a quarter million and had had that circulation for about the past 30 or 40 years. And my column, the current yield column, was reputed, according to their surveys, had like 30,000 or 40,000 or 50,000. So I figured, as my business plan, I figured, uh, Evan, this might interest you. I figured that to out of the 50,000, let us say, that probably... As many as three or four thousand would choose not to subscribe mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. the new grants interest rate observer tops. So we got together with the tax attorneys uh, planning for the uh, abrupt uh, change of financial circumstances in our growing family. And um, as it turns out, 35 people <laughs> subscribed to the first issue of grants. And I was thinking, what are these 50,000 people thinking of? I mean, if, if Mary Childs comes in and takes over this seat, you, do you think that, well, it turns out that life goes on without uh, key employee. turns that life, and Evan, this, this especially, is a, is a, it, it may just be that life is going to go on at Grants without the, without <laughs> the founder. I find it's hard to play myself, but uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's not inconceivable. Yeah, it's, it's a testament to the power of institutions. It's really wild, the extent to which people are loyal to the institution and weirdly not to the person sometimes. I don't know. That is that is really weird. Getting back to the person for a second, I know that uh, Gross was crowned king or bond king in 2002, but it was something that everybody really did kind of recognize for the following decade. He was kind of the voice for Bonds. And since his fall, I mean, people have tried to count Jeffrey Gunlack, but for some reason the crown just doesn't seem to stick. Why hasn't there been kind of another voice for, I guess, the Bond world or a Bond king since uh, since Gross was deposed? Oh, this is such a good question. And I feel like it's like the one that I get the, the second most after was Bill Great uh, at investing. And I think it might speak to, we may have like learned our lesson a little bit. We might have actually learned that star managers aren't necessarily, you know, things that we should, some, like a, a concept that we should pursue for ourselves as a, as a society and as an investing public. I think also we've had more, it's more dispersed now. It's not nearly as concentrated as it was. And I think, you know, Jeffrey Gunlock certainly has the kind of bombast and the personality and the the, the magnetism, right? People love to hear what he has to say. And, and, you know, they follow his pronouncements very closely and get defensive for him. And, you know, there, there is, I mean, he's like a little bit of an Elon Musk of our, of our world, but I think um, even so it is, it is hard to, it just doesn't, we just don't do it as much anymore. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's like healthier for us to not keep crowning people and trying to make them into this, you know, Put them on this pedestal because we just we may know that that doesn't serve us. That sounds a bit hopeful, though, doesn't it? Well, there's, a, you know, there's, there's another possibility, which is that uh, as Gross himself said in a column wrote for the FD, mm -hmm. I think I mentioned this in my review of your book in the Journal, Mary. That uh, uh, since the uh, the financial crisis and even going back to 1971, that the Fed has increasingly since then has uh, been in charge of muscling around the bond market or has made mm -hmm. itself in charge of muscling around the bond market and manipulating interest rates and then uh, that. At the head of the Fed sits in hmm. all his or her splendor, 
uh, the Bond King. So uh, fierce is the light that beats about the throne and uneasy is the head that lies, that wears the crown. Isn't that right, Jay Powell? Speaking of Jay Powell for a second, he's a private equity guy. And in as much as you, you talked about how it's hard to separate whether, uh, I mean, Bill Gross was clearly an intelligent, very talented trader and a very smart guy, but he also did cut his teeth during like, you know, a secular bull market in bonds. But bond managers weren't the only people to benefit from the fall in interest rates. We have a whole kind of like, you know, small nobility within private equity who have clearly benefited some. If we are going into a period of rising interest rates, do you see, I guess, the Bastille Day for more, uh, you know, well-seen, well-respected spokespeople for their their industries? Oh, I mean, first of all, I feel like we often are expecting this kind of paradigm shift. And certainly we are in one now. So so maybe it is now, maybe this time is different. But but I think um, I, I just feel like I'm always ready. Like I was covering distressed debt in what year was it? 2013 and 2014. And there was just like nothing to do. And people kept predicting a washout. They're like, we're raising funds, we're raising funds. And like, it just never came. So I'm sort of like skeptical that paradigm shifts ever quite upend as as violently as we think they will. So with that said, I mean, yeah, if it is a new era, we should have there there have been so many various factors that have provided a wind at the back of all of our nobility. I think you're right. Wow, I'm just mixing all they're in a boat. It's a ship. It's a it's a, sh- a sailboat. Um, <laughs> but I do think that that has has helped create a ton of riches and all of these bold face names that we care so much about and we listen to so closely. And as Bill said in his 2013 investment outlook, how tested are they really? How much, you know, especially when you think about the rise in private markets over the decades, you know, oh, I'm going to buy this company, take it private, fiddle with it a little bit, make it a little more fancy in this way or that way. And there I'm done. I did it. And there's like a genius to that sometimes. And there's just a real simple nothingness to that sometimes. And the, the, the dispersion between that hasn't been that great. Mary, does Bill Gross like the book? Um, I'm thinking no. I actually have not heard from him um, or his people really since it came out. And I actually, if you, if I'm thinking about the timeline, you know, I, my fact checker sent him questions last summer and, you know, this is an exhaustive process of just making sure every single word in the book is correct. And, and, you know, not one is out of line. And so you get a pretty good look at, at what is in the book. You know, it's not all my beautiful adjectives and all the, you know, painstaking semicolons, but it is the, the bones of the book. And I think that may not have been what he was hoping. Um, I don't know what he was hoping. He never told me. He's, he's actually quite a good uh, subject for a journalist because he understands the process and is not really annoying about it. You know, he, he gives you kind of a wide berth. He supplies interviews. He's just like actually quite um, nice from that perspective. But I do think that something must have happened in, and he decided that my book was not his book and he needed to do his own book. So I don't know. I haven't, you know, it's only been out a couple of days, so he only could have read it since Tuesday. Um, I don't know. He's been quiet at me at least. You know, uh, Dr. Johnson said that the only evil uh, that money can certainly hmm. uh, fix is poverty. Right. And uh, the rest of them are there for the plucking. That feels right. So, um, so that, 10, that 10 million, Mary, it's not going to make you happy. I think so. I mean, I met a lot of people in the course of reporting this book who had a bajillion dollars who were miserable. And I know that, you know, it's a bit flippant that I say in the book, you know, oh, this wouldn't make me happy. Like, of course, I would have a really fancy whatever. I Yes, I would buy all the paint in the world. And, you know, that would be lovely for me. But I don't know that, you know, it, it's 
it's definitely clear to me that there's some tipping point where once all your needs are met and you can put food on the table for your family, the marginal utility of the next, you know, ten dollars, it does there's a point at which it starts declining. And there's also a very high cost to these extremely toxic cultural corporate environments where you're getting money, but you're losing more. Uh, you know what they say at Goldman Sachs, happiness can't buy your money. <laughs> That's beautiful. I'm gonna get that tattooed. <laughs> Well, um, Harry Childs, this has been just fabulous. So glad to have you and your book. On, uh, Thank you so much. It was glad it's it was really good of your book to turn up for this interview, too. Say what? So I said it was, it was good of you and your book to show up for this. <laughs> well, I have to thank you. I, I really, your uh, stamp of approval really means so much to me. Your review in the journal and this conversation, I just, oh, my heart is full. Well, thank you. And it's, uh, anyway, I, I, uh, <laughs> here I am stammering. It's too many compliments. So, uh, sorry. You're, sorry. You're entirely welcome. Yeah, well, I'll uh, I'll nurse them later like a beer. Evan, thank you as always for being around. And uh, in the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. 